0: A graduate of Asbury College and Asbury Theological Seminary, Dennis Kinlaw received his PhD from Brandeis University. He was a lifelong student of God's word and human culture, always looking for evidence of God's activity in human life. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Just as you were called to one hope of your calling, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of God's gift. Therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. The gifts he gave were the that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine and by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom? The old body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. It's a great privilege for me to be here this morning with you. I don't know any place I would rather be in the world than in a commissioning service at OMS, and so it's a joy for me. And I'm grateful that I was given the invitation. You honor me. This is a moment, and every commissioning service is a moment of joy. It really is a time for thanksgiving. And as we think of thanksgiving, we need to give thanks to God for the gifts that he has given to us. And this morning, the gifts that we want to recognize are these that are being commissioned. Because if Paul is correct, they're direct gifts of God in his loving grace to OMS, to you and to me, and to the world. Now, those of you who are being commissioned today, you may not think particularly of yourselves as the gifts of God. But you notice the passage that I read. Paul is speaking about another gift, the prime gift of all gifts, and that is the gift of his eternal Son, who came to us in the incarnation. You will remember the story, you know it well, of how he descended from heaven's glory. As Paul says to the lower regions of the earth, and I don't know about you, but when I read that, to the lower regions of the earth, there's something sinister about it to me, because what it meant was that the eternal Son of God came into our world to confront all of its evil, all that is demonic, all that has captured the human spirit and destroyed it and set us free. And then, after that glorious victory, he ascended back into heaven, carrying cap with him captive. And so because of his gift, the Father's gift to us, now every prisoner in all of God's creation can be set free. Then we are told by Paul, as he ascended and went back, he gave gifts in his place. The Father gave him to us, and now the Son gives these gifts, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the work of the ministry, what ministry? The very ministry of the eternal Son of God. That ministry, as we said, to bring all creatures into the freedom of the children of God. I saw on, on the computer internet not too long ago, a group that calls themselves the Radical Orthodox. I was very interested, primarily, I think, Anglo-Catholics in the Anglican Confession. But I noticed what their purpose for existence was. It was very simply stated, to regain the world for God. Now, I don't know how you would improve on what our concern here is today and why God gave these to us than that. So the Father gave the Son, and now he gives these to us. It was not your decision that brought you here, first of all. You may have, your presence may be because you made a decision, but there was a prior decision in the very heart of God that picked you out to be a part of his answer to the problems of our needy world. Now, Paul makes that clear introduces a principle that uh, I think sometimes we miss. Writing to Timothy, Paul says to him in a remarkable few verses, This is right and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved. Paul now is just laying bare the cover of the very heart of God, And he says, if you could see into the very heart of God, you would see his desire that all should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus himself, human, who gave himself a ransom for all. Now, you will notice how Paul describes Jesus as the one mediator between God and those of us who are his creatures, his creation. And he is the one who stands between. I think for a long time I missed it. But the way God has put our world together is that he never acts directly. He always acts through. Someone. There is a mediatorial principle that runs through the universe, through humankind, through all of God's creation. And apparently that mediatorial principle runs right through the very nature of God. As he said, he wants everyone to be saved, but the way he is doing it is first of all through his son. And he calls him a mediator. So now, the Father, the Son whom the Father gave, gives others so that the world may know. Now, I want to emphasize this morning a preposition. I've thought sometimes about preaching a sermon on it's all in the prepositions," And I think biblically I'd have no trouble making a case. And the preposition here is through not by. So when God gives gifts, it is not that they are the answer to the needs of the world, but that it is through them, through us, that the answer can come to the needs of the world. Now that principle is far broader than I ever thought. It's interesting, that's the way we learn everything we learn. My great-grandson was riding horseback with his father and uh my grandson-in-law and with uh, his own and uh, his own grandfather and as they rode through the forest they noticed a dead tree covered with moss and so my great-grandson commented on the deadness of the tree six and a half years of age and said what about this stuff that's on it And so his father, who teaches biology, said, Well, that moss eats the tree, and it dies. And my great-grandson said, The moss doesn't have a mouth, and it doesn't have teeth. How can it eat the tree? And then his father, who's a good teacher, explained to him how that moss is able to suck the very life out of the tree, And my great-great-grandson learned something as well as his great-grandfather because I never realized that moths could eat trees. But we learn always through someone else. When a baby comes into the world, its only way of ever knowing is through somebody else. We do it with doctors. We do it in multitudes of other ways. We look for people whose wisdom can enrich our lives and enable us to be what we ought to be. And God has so built it into the universe that that's the way we all get here. We always come through someone else. We can't create life, but God's method of giving life is through someone else. I met the other day someone who said, you know, when I meet a Christian, I know... Something about him. I know he is a person who's met a Christian. Because you never meet a Christian who hasn't met a Christian. Now that mediatorial principle that just runs through human existence. And you see it in history. In the God called Abraham. And through Israel the knowledge came. Of the one God and of his son Jesus Christ. And of redemption. And through Israel it came to us. And now, we who are Gentiles can share with the world what has been given to us by someone else. Now, that means that you and I are the means, God's only means, of re-winning his creation, and for it being to set free. Now, that can be a terrifying thought. It's a pretty heavy load to put on a person like you and me. But the load is there. I remember, I don't know how old I was. I must have been 50 before I really looked at Jesus' commissioning of the 12 when he sent them out. Now, I'd read it as I read my scriptures over the years. And as I said, I think I was 50. And then suddenly there it was. It stared at me. Jesus looked at 12 men and said, if they receive you, they get me. And if they get me, they get my Father. And if they reject you, they miss me. And when they miss me, they miss my Father. It's through you that their hope can come to them. You know what my reaction was as I read that? I had been in the ministry for 30 years. I looked at it and thought, thank God I wasn't one of the 12. I didn't want that burden on me. (laughs) That I should be the only means by which someone else could know Christ. And a certain existential terror struck deep within me. Then I looked at Luke 10. And I found that when he sent out the seven, he said the same thing. He said, if they receive you, they get me. And if they get me, they get my Father. And if they reject you, they miss me. And if they miss me, they miss my Father. And I thought, well, at least I wasn't one of the 70. And then I read John 13 and Jesus universalized. And he spoke of any believer. And he said, if they accept you, if they receive what I've given to you, they get me. And when they get me, they get my Father. And if they reject what I have given to you, they miss me and they miss my Father. Now, Paul makes the language almost stronger in 2 Corinthians. An amazing passage. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always, listen to this, always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads in every place the fragrance that comes from knowing him. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are a fragrance from death to death and to another, a fragrance from life to life. Now, I don't know about you, but I understand fully why Paul's next words are, who is sufficient for this? That I should be the aroma through which a world, some part of God's world can know Christ. Your B.O. counts, interestingly enough, in these terms. He says he spreads through us in every place the fragrance that comes from knowing him. We are his medium. I don't think there's any question, but that was what was in Paul's mind when he said to the Philippians, for me to live is Christ. I'm sure he meant that for me, life is Christ. If I have him, I have life. But if implicit within it also is that which put a bit of terror in me, when Paul was saying, yes, and I, if I live, I become Christ to others because Christ has no other way to get to them. Now, how does this work? How is it possible for a person like me with my flaws, my failings, my inabilities and all that to be the doorway through which God can get to someone else. Now, that's another gift matter. It's all a question of gifts. You remember the last night when Jesus was with his disciples, that last night before the cross? He said something that shocked them because they asked him about it. He said to them, now, I'm not praying for the world. It's interesting that God doesn't pray for his world. And so what was in their mind was, don't you care about the world? And he said, oh, of course. That's why I don't pray about the, for the world. I pray for you. Because you are the hope of the world. And I pray for those that will come after you that believe because of you. Because the only hope the world has is in the body of Christ. The body that was hanging on the cross where the blood was spilled, and the body that includes you is one of the members of his body, and that includes me. And so he says, now, I'm going to give you a gift. The Father has given me to you, and I'm going to give you a gift. And that's the only way it can take place. And what is that gift? You catch it in chapter 20, when Jesus, on the first night, after the resurrection, on Easter Sunday evening, looked at the disciples, the ladies that were there, the children, his friends, and breathed on them. And said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. The Father has now given, given me to you and to the world. Now I give the Holy Spirit to you and to the world. You know, I never read that, but I find myself going back to Genesis 2. When God had taken the very dust of this earth that you and I, of which you and I are a part. And out of that dust he formed a human figure. And then he breathed into him the breath of life. The Ruach in Hebrew. The Pneuma in Greek. He breathed into him the breath of life. The Spirit of God. And the Shamat in Hebrew too. He breathed into him, and he had a living soul on his hand. Now, what was it that we lost when Adam sinned? We lost that very spirit that he had given to us. And the inner heart of man was empty when it should have been filled with the spirit of God. And it took all those centuries to get the stage right to where God could again give to our hearts what we so desperately need, the very Spirit of the living God. Now, it's interesting, there are numbers of names and figures that are used for the Spirit in Scripture. But there are three this morning that I want to particular deal with. The first is, as we said, he's the Spirit of life. He turned dust into a living person. Now, you get that theme running through Scripture. You get it in Ezekiel 37, where you have the dry bones, the valley full of dry bones. And God says to the prophet, or the messenger says to the prophet, can these bones live? And the prophet's astounded and says, how can we know? Then the spirit came, the wind breathed, and a valley of dry bones became a living host of multiplied thousands. Now, he's the spirit of life. He's the spirit that gave birth to Jesus. In Mary's womb is the spirit that enabled the conception to take place. And so Christ was a gift. And it is the spirit that puts God's life in you and me, in the new birth. And so he is the spirit of life. And God has given that spirit to you. What does that mean? You will never confront a dead situation that you don't have the answer potentially within you. Because that answer is the Spirit of God. Now, Jesus used a figure that is equally impressive to me. You remember the woman at the well, when he said to her, to her shock, would you give me some water to drink? And she said, this is astounding. You, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan and a woman drink. And he said, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, he'd give you a gift. And what would that gift be? It would be living water so that you will never thirst again. Now, you have to link that with that experience of his at the Feast of Tabernacles recorded in chapter 7. Because on the last day, There had been that ceremony every day of the pouring of the water. Now, the last day, he says, this is not the water you need, but I'll give it to you. He said, on that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink, and out of his inward part shall flow living water. This spake he of the Spirit who had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, I want you to think for a moment about the figure. Jesus says, I'm not the answer. (laughs) And don't misunderstand me. But he says, out of your inward parts, I will give you the answer to the needs of the world, and that's my spirit. And so what it is, he flows out. It's as if Jesus were the well through which he comes. And we become the well through which the water of life comes to a needy world that dies in its thirst. You remember that Ezekiel again foreshadowed that. When he saw the stream coming out from under the temple, just a few droplets, they became a massive stream. Came to first covered the feet, then it covered the knees, then it came to the hips. Then it was a stream to swim in. A stream that carried the person who stepped in it, rather than the person carrying the stream. And now God gives to you a stream that can carry you. And it can turn death like the Dead Sea into a place of life where there are fish. Trees along the bank. Provide healing for the nations. It can turn the bitter into the sweet. Now, that's the gift. God said, Jesus says, I give him to you. Now, the third figure Paul develops. It's in Romans, but it's elsewhere. He's telling the story of how man knows God. In the first chapter, in the introduction, he says it's for the whole world. In chapter 2, he says it's for the inner heart of a man. It's not the outside. It's the change deep within here. Then you get the story of justification. But what's the capstone? And he says the Holy Spirit will shed abroad in your heart the love of God. And you know, I thought for a long time he'd quicken my love. But that's not what he said. If he quickens my love, It's not a gift. He just quickened me. But what he says is, he will give to me the very love that binds the three persons of the Trinity together. So that if you could move into the very heart of God, what makes them God, he says, I will give to you as a gift. You'll never be divine. But you can have that gift within you. And what is that? It's an astounding thing. Because you see, uh, that love is always creative. That's how God created the universe. Now, I'm going to use bad language and the theologians would be unhappy with me. But let me just say it to get it on the table. I don't think he had any options. When that love flows through you, you've got to give, and you've got to have somebody to give it to. And one day, the three persons of the Trinity said, we need to extend this. It's too good to keep within ourselves. And so Jesus says, I'll give you the one who put that in you. Now, that's particularly helpful for missionaries. Because, you see, one of the major problems for a missionary in the world is the other missionaries. Now, if you're not aware of that, talk with some of the honest, older missionaries about it. (laughs) You will find that oftentimes the other missionaries are much more difficult than the pagans you go to. But now he gives me a gift who can put the love that put Jesus on the cross in my heart. And if Jesus could love the Roman soldier who nailed him, and Caiaphas, who sentenced him, now to be able to love you, if I've got that one in me. And do you know something? When you get people that live together and love each other, you have to take artificial means to keep children from being born. There's something creative about this love that he puts within us. And you know, when I come to this, I think of my Australian friend. She was an atheist journalist sent to a charismatic community, a drug community, to write a story on, the drug, on drug addiction and the Christian solution to it. And she and her paganism in the third interview with the guy who led it, humble little Australian pastor, she suddenly broke. Very strong woman. Burst into tears and said, I don't know what you've got here, but there's nothing in the world I wouldn't give for it. And the little humble Australian pastor said, well, you can have it. She said, well, how can I have it? I thought it was religious. And he said, oh, it's very religious. Well, she said, you see, I'm an atheist. How can I have it? He said, that's no problem. Just tell him. She's in Christian service today and one of the more influential Christians that I know in the world. There's something about this love that when it's there, it reproduces. And so Jesus Jesus knew the disciples were going to need it. Peter was going to need it to deal with Paul. Paul was going to need it to deal with Peter. And he can put it within us, that spirit, that can produce agape love. You know, uh, he doesn't send us out unprepared. He gives us what we need. And that need is the spirit. You know, I've loved knowing some of the history and its influenced me a great deal of OMS. One of the things about Americans is we tend to think the latest thing is the best. And when we think that way, we move it into all sorts of places. We forget that the dwarf sits on the shoulders of a giant. If he kicks the giant too much, the dwarf's going to end up in a sea of legs the rest of his days. And we ought to have respect for those who've gone before us and made today possible for us. But you know, one of the things I know about the early days of the OMS, there was an incredible emphasis on the Holy Spirit. You know who the first president of the OMS was? He was a Japanese in Japan who heard that if he went to Moody Bible Institute, he could learn about the Holy Spirit and receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So he traveled from Japan to Chicago and met the Kalmans. And you and I are sitting here today because of a man who hungered for the Holy Spirit and for his fullness. Now, let me make a comment about what I think. And I'm not all wisdom by any means, not even partial wisdom. But, you know, one of the differences I find in the literature of those days, the end of the 19th century and the beginning, from the middle of the 20th century on, They were after the person of the Spirit. And then we decided we wanted his power and we wanted his gifts. And Elsa didn't want me to marry her for what she brought with her. She wanted me to marry her for who she was. And do you know he's better than his power? (laughs) And he's infinitely better than his gifts. (laughs) Jesus didn't say a word in that last night when he was talking to his disciples about power or gifts. He said, I will give you the Spirit. And if you get him, there will be power and there will be the supreme gift. Because he's the one who will look upon this desert of our world and turn it into a paradise again, a garden. The thing I love is, I never greatly thought about it, but a Christian can look at any desert and know that he has what within him can turn the Saharas of the world into gardens, rose gardens. I ought to get as close to him as I can. I ought to get to know him as well as I can get to know him. I ought to get as sensitive to him as I can get, so that when he so gently checks me, I sense the check and keep myself clean through him so he can flow. And so, that's what a commissioning service is. That's why we lay hands on people. Because the laying of our hands on your head is not going to make any difference. But God lives by symbolism and teaches by symbolism. It's interesting in the early church when they were working out the doctrine of the Trinity. Some of the early church fathers talked about the Spirit, the second and the third person of the Trinity, the Son and the Spirit. As the right hand and the left hand of God. Now I don't think you'd be here. If the right hand wasn't on you. And I know that you have this him within you. But what we need. Is the fullness of the spirit. Moving through us. Because he is the answer. To the problems of our world. And we. Are the medium. Preposition is not by. The preposition is through. Will you pray with me? Jesus, you said to people just like us. The scripture tells us that you breathed on them and said, receive ye the spirit. Paul said, walk in the spirit. Live in the Spirit. Teach us, we pray. Open us. Open us totally to where your Spirit, our Father, can permeate us totally. And we can be clean channels for a water of life It can transform the deserts of the world into gardens, edens, into paradise again.